That's without my knowledge. All right. Good job, y'all. Didn't they do a good job? Appreciate it. All right. Before we get into the questions, I need to dismiss the uh, healing training class. Uh, Joanne, where are you? You in here? There you are. You can't see Joanne. She's right down there. God bless you, dear. Uh, she's teaching that tonight, and we're going to be opening up the healing room when, Valerie? Next Wednesday night. So when you come to church, we'll have the healing room functioning, praying, ministering next Wednesday night after Easter. So that's great. So tonight is the last night of training, uh, just learning the protocol and whatnot. So if you're with Joanne, follow her out right there along with Valerie. You can see Valerie. Raise your hand, Valerie, and lead them out. And God bless all of you as you go to the healing training. Amen. There goes quite a few of them. That's great. That healing room is going to be a blessing. All right. You must want to hear some answers to questions. I mean, really, it's been great. And I've really enjoyed researching the questions that you've given me. Um, and, and we're not stopping tonight. We, we at least have to go one more week because I still have questions I've got to get to. Now, next week, partly, is going to be sex night. Some of you look like you're not here because of sex. But I've gotten questions, and I'm going to answer them. And you know, it's not that big a deal. The Bible talks about sex. It tells us because of sex, we're all here, and that God created it, right? But that's next week. Watch, they'll be in the overflow room next week. But let's pray, and I'm going to deal with as many of these tonight as I can. And these are... Uh, really great questions that I believe most of us would want to know an answer to. So let's pray. Father, we just thank you tonight that you have answers to the great questions of life right out of your word. And Lord, I pray that you will dispel confusion, clear up the cobwebs in our minds of foggy understanding of certain things and give us clarity tonight. Help us, Lord, to understand what your Bible says, your word, about what really matters to us. We thank you for giving us ears to hear and eyes to see. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, turn to your neighbor and tell them, get ready, here we go. Now, I, I try to take the questions that were... Um, one asked most frequently. Do you know what the number one question was? Number one most asked question was this one. Once we're saved, are we always saved? Or can we lose our salvation? That was asked over and over again. So I'm not answering that one. I'm going to move to the next one. Here we go. Now, I'm going to pull straight from Scripture, and, you know, like I, I have a little philosophy. When I listen to different teachers and, and whatnot, um, I've learned to chew the meat and spit out the bones. I may not agree with everything every teacher says, but as long as they don't go into heresy, I'm good. And um, so, let's look at this question, because I think a lot of people struggle with this. They really wonder about this question. So, Often I hear people say that they cannot understand why there's so many denominations. Actually, there's only two groups. Those who believe in salvation by grace and those who believe in salvation by works. And that covers the cults. That covers different branches of Christianity. So again, there's only really two groups. Those that believe you're saved by grace or you're saved by works. And you can divide all denominations and cults into one of those two categories. Now, this is the dividing line. And all other divisions are immaterial in the light of this one. This is one doctrine upon which the message of the Bible stands or falls. whole New Testament stands or falls on that question. Many of our friends who believe that a man can be lost after he is saved 
I personally believe never carry this scenario to its ultimate conclusion. Think it through all the way to the end. They never dig in to discover the conclusion to which this problem takes them. For example, now everybody say, I'm putting on my thinking cap. Can you say with me, God gave me a brain. I'm going to use it tonight. Now let's think. If a man can be lost after he is saved, what is important is not the sins he commits or the awfulness of those sins. The important thing is if he can lose his salvation, here's the question, can he be saved again? And if you believe you can, how many times have you been saved? Is there such a thing as being saved twice? I ask you, walk with me through this. Is there such a thing as being saved twice, thrice, four times, five, five times? Is it possible to be born again and again and again and again and again and again? Can you repeat a birth? There lies the whole difficulty. Right there. Without fail, when dealing with this subject, somebody always comes up with this suggestion. Oh, well... well if I believe in once saved, always saved, then I'm going to get saved and then I'm going to go out and do what I want because I'm saved. Then I can go do what I want to do. I've heard that so many times. Well, you can't preach once saved, always saved because if you preach that, then people are going to say, oh, well, I'm born again, so I'm going to go live however I want because I can't lose it. It doesn't work that way, church. For when you become a child of God, your will is submitted to the Lordship of Christ. Anybody who's trying to take advantage of the grace of God, I submit to you, has never been saved. See, I believe more in his power to keep us than our power to lose him. What happens when you and I get saved? We are given a brand new nature, right? If any man be in Christ, he is a whole new creation the old has passed away, all has become new. Isn't that what it says? So we have a new nature. Well, does that new nature just sit there? Is it dormant? How does it manifest? It manifests in giving us holy desires, righteous desires. One of them being, I want to please the Lord. Okay? When the Lord Jesus saves a person, he installs in that individual a desire for holiness. I'm going to read that again. Because if you had any other experience, I'm going to question whether you've been saved. When the Lord Jesus saves a person, he installs in that individual a desire for holiness and an intense appreciation for the sacrifice of the cross that drives the person to live to please the Lord. Okay? Now, now I'm just walking through this logically. And I'm walking through the scriptures. We need to think this whole notion of if you can lose your salvation and then get saved again, lose it and then repent and get saved again, lose it and then repent and get saved again. My Lord, I know some people, by the time they get to heaven, they done been saved 500 times. Another person might ask, well then, what happens to the sins of the believer after he's saved? What happens to them? Well, do you know that the Catholic Church believes a man can be lost after he is saved? They say that penance will atone for some and purgatory will take care of the rest of them because they believe in being lost after being saved. They have to invent purgatory because you've got to have somewhere where you can get your lost salvation back. Purgatory is the intermediary place that a believer goes to pay for their sins. And once the sins are paid for, over time, they get out and go to heaven. Unless somebody pays an indulgence on your behalf, then you get out quick. It's a get-out-of-prison-quick card. It's sort of like a prison sentence. You go into purgatory, and you, you pay for your sins, and then once you pay for them, you get out and you go on to heaven. Jesus never mentioned such a place as purgatory. It's not there anywhere in the Bible. It has no scriptural foundation whatsoever, any place called purgatory. 
It's not there. Now, I get my truth only from the Bible. My source of truth is the Bible. A lot of the church's problem is they are open to getting truth from the culture, getting truth from many other places other than the Bible, but that's not what the Scripture says. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, correction, reproof, and instruction in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be perfectly and thoroughly equipped to do his will. So my source is the Scripture, not anything extra-biblical. And in the Bible, there's no such place as purgatory. The man who believes in being lost after you are saved is stating that you must experience multiple salvations and confess your sins almost hour by hour because if you die with some sins on you, you'll go to hell. We've always heard, if you're driving down the highway as a believer and you just left church and somebody pulls in front of you and makes you mad and you cuss and right about then you have a wreck and you die, where'd you go with a cuss word hanging on your lips? Well, I hope I go to purgatory and pay it off and then go to heaven. No. You're covered in the blood of the Lamb. Our righteousness is never about us. It's not about our performance. It's about Him and His performance. Now, Scripture teaches if a Christian sins after he's saved, and we all do, then he or she is to repent. It's very simple. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. That's called the most precious verse. 1 John 1, 9. God may chastise him, God may spank him, but he will not send his child to hell. Whenever a person becomes converted, God locks the door of hell and throws the key away. That's it. Now, I know what you're thinking. Some of you are thinking, about what about Hebrews 6? What about Hebrews 6? Let's look at Hebrews 6. Let's follow the logic of Hebrews. If a person could be lost after he's saved, Hebrews teaches that it would be impossible to renew such a one to repentance. The lost person could not be saved. This would mean that the only safe period in the Christian's life would be between the time that he gets saved and the next time that he sins. For remember that if a person could be lost after he's saved, one sin would do it. Because they're all equal. If you break one, you break them all. Here's my problem with this. If the devil can get one of God's children, he can get them all. I'm going to say that again. If, he, if all he's got to do is get you to sin, to take away your salvation, then if he can get one, he can get them all. How many of you have sinned since you got saved? Anybody in here has not sinned since you got saved? I want to meet you afterwards, and I want you to lay hands on me. Now, follow this through. If he doesn't get all of them, it's because he doesn't want all of them. Because he's, we're all going to make a mistake and sin. Therefore, those that the devil doesn't want to go to heaven on the grace of the devil instead of the grace of God. Those that the devil doesn't want that he leaves alone so that they don't sin again, they get into heaven by the grace of the devil, not the grace of God. Think that over for a moment. Now, here's Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. This is, these are the passages the enemy uses so often to cause people to doubt eternal security. Let's just read it. For it's impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away. And we go, oh, oh, oh that's me. There it is. What does it say next? It's impossible to do what? Renew them again to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put Him to an open shame. Hebrews 6, 4-6. to Now, it's very crucial in interpreting these passages that we understand who Hebrews was written to. It's to the Jew who had been raised in Old Testament Judaism. Old Testament Judaism was all they had ever known. And now here comes Jesus Christ. He, he, he lives 
He is crucified and he, then he's resurrected. And immediately his disciples begin preaching an entirely novel message. The gospel of grace. That was, that was new, novel, fresh, unprecedented. The gospel of grace, not of works, of salvation by faith, not by strict obedience to Mosaic law. So the subjects of this terrible warning that we just read are those who, having once made the initial responses to the gospel, were being drawn back into Judaism. Essentially, this sin was possible only to Jews, and especially to Jews of the first century who were living while the temple was still standing, with all of its Old Testament sacrifices and ritual still taking place slaughtering the lambs, all the different things they did. Now, in a secondary sense, the warning in Hebrews has an application to those today who are drawn to the gospel message and they're just about to make a profession of faith only to renounce it in order to return to their sin. The writer of Hebrews, which I think it was Paul, having warned the weak that they are on thin ice, urges them to come all the way into Christ and not even think about returning to Judaism. They were pondering the gospel's claims, but were yet to be fully persuaded. Now let's pick it apart. We're told several things about them. First, they had once been enlightened. They had been once enlightened. This means that they had seen the truth of Christ. I've seen a lot of people see the truth of Christ, but never come in. They're here every week. They see the truth of Christ, but they never come in. You can tell their lives have never changed. They never come to him. But if you ask them, you, you believe in Jesus? Oh, yeah, I believe Jesus was, was the Son of God. I believe he was a great guy, told the truth. But all they've done is taste. They have not dived in. We're told they had tasted, and that word is used a lot, tasted of the heavenly gift. In other words, they had tasted... Go ahead here. There we go. They had tasted the spiritual character of the truth and goodness of Christ. They had tasted of the heavenly gift. They had seen that Christ was good to the spiritual palate. Yeah, he's good. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. And they'll tell you, oh yeah, Jesus was good. But that doesn't mean they came to him. Their eyes had been opened to what God offered in Christ. This would not be repeated if they drew back and rejected it. And he says they were made partakers of the Holy Ghost. Well, stop for a minute, because I know what you're thinking. Well, if they were made a partaker of the Holy Ghost, they had to be saved. No, because the first work of the Holy Spirit is to convict of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment to come, and to make Christ real to the soul. He will take what is mine and show it to you. When the Holy Ghost comes, he will convict the world, convince the world, persuade the world, of sin, righteousness, and judgment to come. So the first experience anybody has with the Holy Spirit is that of conviction. But does everybody convicted come to him? No. They had experienced that conviction, but they hadn't come to him. These Hebrews had been brought to the place of repentance and to an enlightened understanding that Christ was all he claimed to be, but to be a partaker of the Holy Spirit is not to be a possessor of the Holy Spirit. I can tell you, I see people every week get touched with conviction in our services. But I see a lot of them walk out. I see a lot of them never come to him. I see a lot of them come to him, thank God. But I, I've been around this thing a long time. I've seen many people get convicted, but it stopped there. What did, what did um, Herod say to Paul? Almost you persuade me to be a Christian. Almost persuaded. But not quite. I'm convicted, Paul, but, but not quite. I'm not, re- I'm not coming in. You almost got me. That's who he's talking about here. To recognize the truth in Christ is not to be a Christian. And they had tasted the good word of God. Well, that's, that's no news. Uh, the entire Old Testament had been given to them. They knew the Word of God inside out as far as the Old Testament. They knew the goodness of God's Word. 
And finally, they had tasted the powers of the, world's, of the world to come. You better believe they had. They had personal, personally watched Jesus heal the sick, raise the dead, preach like no man ever preached, open blind eyes, open deaf ears. They, they had had the power of the kingdom of God right there in their midst. And yet, what did they do? They got all over Jesus for healing on the Sabbath. So, Sure, they tasted of the powers of the world to come. They were right there and saw it. It doesn't mean they got saved. They had only tasted these things. They had not drunk deeply from Christ and the Holy Spirit. It was now a question of choice on their part. So I don't see that these well-known passages are dealing with people losing their salvation at all. It is encouraging those who had not yet fully come to Christ to do so. As to those who are truly saved, let's look at what Jesus said about those who are really his. What did he say? My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they, read this last part with me, everybody, and they shall never perish. Now read this next one, good. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Now, let's read further. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. Now, preach this one. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. That's pretty clear to me. Now, again, I'm going to leave you with a question before I go to this next one. Can you be saved twice, thrice, four times, five times? If you can lose your salvation, what sin is it that takes it away? And then what do you have to do to get it back? And how long do you have to get it back? And how many times can you be saved in one lifetime? I'm just leaving you with a question. But I came to get answers. I just gave you some answers. But I want you to ask yourself that question. I personally believe we are secure. And I don't look at me as being able to lose it. I look at him as being able to keep me. That's the way I see it. Now, what does the Scripture mean that says many are called, but few are chosen? You ever wonder about that one? Well, here's an answer. Many are called to Christ for the preaching of the gospel, like we just talked about. Yet few choose to respond. You think of Billy Graham in a stadium of 50,000 people. And there's tons of lost people out there, tons of them. And he gives an invitation, and a fraction of those people come down. But the majority of them do not. Okay? Many were called, but few chose to take advantage of the call. The reason why sinners don't come to Christ and salvation by him is not because they can't, but because they won't. Let me show you what Jesus said in John 5, verse 40. You are, he says, but you are not willing you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. So you are not willing. So it is a matter of choice. And many are called. Many hear the gospel. Many have a chance. But few take advantage of it. Wide is the gate that leads to destruction. Many there be that go in thereat. But narrow is the way that leads to life. And few there be that find it. That's just the odds. Now, what is the name, the next question, what is the name of Jesus in Hebrew? Well, I want to answer that one. Here it is. Yeshua is the Hebrew name for the Lord. It means Yahweh, the Lord, is salvation. Can we say that together? Yahweh, the Lord, is salvation. The English spelling of Yeshua is Joshua. However, when translated from Hebrew into the Greek language, the name Yeshua becomes Iesus. And the English spelling for Iesus is Jesus. Isn't that a sweet name, wonderful name? There's no other name like the name of Jesus. Can we just say thank you, Lord, for the name of Jesus? Can you say with me, there is power in that name. Unlike any other name. Amen. Now here's a question. Why is hell preached as the final destination for the unsaved when the ultimate destination for the lost is the lake of fire? 
Well, technically, it is not accurate to preach that hell is the final destination for the lost, because it's not. Now, let's look at what the Bible says. The Greek word for hell is hides or Hades. Jesus affirmed that he is the one who possesses the keys, the authority to open death and Hades. That's, isn't that something? Our Savior has keys in his hand. He's got the keys to life, the keys to hell. He, he's the key holder. Okay? He's the key holder. And uh, so in one of his visions also, John sees death riding a pale horse followed by Hades. So let me give you a definition of Hades. Hades is the non-permanent place. Now we're talking about purgatory here. We're talking about something that really is in the Bible. Hades is the non-permanent place or temporary address of the disembodied souls of the dead. Follow me closely. It is not the grave or sepulcher. Hades doesn't mean grave. It doesn't mean sepulcher. Nor is it the eternal location of the souls of the dead. We might call it a spiritual waiting room. Hades. Prior to Jesus Christ's resurrection, both the souls of the evil and the souls of the righteous went to Hades after death. Hades has two separate halves, and we see this in Jesus' parable of the rich man that went to hell. Remember, he looked up, and he saw Lazarus in Abraham's bosom. He saw his former servant, who he had treated badly, in Abraham's bosom. And, and, and he talked about what he was seeing. Now, he was in Hades, but so was Abraham and the servant that had died. There's two halves. One side was and is reserved for the torment of the evil, while the other side that Jesus called in the parable Abraham's bosom in Luke 16 was for the comfort of the righteous. Now, I see the wheels spinning. Just let all this soak in. By the way, you can get the notes if you want. You might want to take these notes home and look at them. But this is the way it is in the, in the spiritual world. Now, Jesus said there is an impossible, impassable canyon or gulf. He said, he said to the rich man, you can't get to him and he can't get to you. Because there is a great gulf fixed between the two. The two halves of Hades. When Jesus was resurrected... He led the righteous out of Hades to heaven. Remember the question we answered last week. We talked about all those formerly Old Testament righteous people who were resurrected and they started coming out of their graves when Jesus was resurrected. Remember that last week? That's what was happening right here. They were being led out of Hades. They were being delivered from Hades and into heaven where Jesus was going to go. Paul said that, they, that the Lord led captivity captive. Now, many of the Old Testament saints were resurrected into their immortal bodies at that time. In other words, the good part of Hades was emptied out when Jesus was resurrected. <laughs> Y'all are... It's true now. It's all in the Bible. Since then, since Jesus' resurrection, the souls of all the saved people go directly to heaven when their bodies die. The lost people still go to Hades and join the lost people of the Old Testament in torment when they die. The other side of Hades, formerly known as Abraham's bosom, is vacant. Because they all came out when Jesus was resurrected. They all started coming out of their graves. Hey, there's Isaiah, there's Jeremiah, there's Ezekiel. Hey, Hosea. Where had they been? They had been in Abraham's bosom. They had been in the good part 
the, the peaceful part, the glorious part of Hades. But now it's empty. It's vacant since Jesus Christ led the saints within it to heaven after his resurrection. Now, look what Revelation says to confirm what I'm sharing with you. Revelation says that both death and Hades will be emptied at the time of the great white throne judgment. When God brings everybody in front of him who has never come to Christ, never been saved, they will all be brought before the judgment seat of God. And look what it says. Revelation 20, verse 13 and 14 says, Death and Hades spew up the dead that are in them. Well, what were they doing? Well, they were in the waiting room called Hades. Now, after, Revelation 20 says, let's read this, one of the most somber passages in the whole Bible. I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their what? Works. By the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it. And look, death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Now it gets worse. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The, the waiting room, that dreaded place, is destroyed in the lake of fire. This is the second death. And then look what it says. Anybody not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So, so here's the deal. Right now, as of this moment, not one single solitary thing has ever entered the lake of fire. Nothing. No demon, no devil, no Satan, no nothing. No lost soul, nothing. If you're saved and you die, you go immediately in the presence of the Lord. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. If you're lost and you die, you go to Hades. And in Hades, you wait for the great white throne judgment. And when that judgment comes, Hades spews you up before God. That's somber stuff. This is why we preach the gospel. The gospel of salvation. At the judgment, Hades will deliver up all the souls that are in it. They will be judged, and from there will be cast into the lake of fire, and then... The lake of fire will be occupied. Anyone not found written in the book of life was cast in the lake of fire. Okay, everybody got that question? So technically, no. Uh, it, it, repent or you're going straight to hell. You won't go straight to hell. You'll detour to Hades. And then at the great white throne judgment, then you go into the lake of fire. Is it okay for Christians, next question, to smoke marijuana? especially since it's about to be legalized. Let me answer it. I'm going to answer it straight out of the Word of God. Here's the answer. I want to answer this question from two angles, the physical and then the spiritual. Let's deal with the physical first. The physical answer lies in the chemical constitution of marijuana. All forms of marijuana contain THC, tetrahydrocannabinol, tetrahydrocannabinol. The main active chemical and the one responsible for creating a high. High. <laughs> Only problem with that is you always come down. Anyway, briefly, let me tell you about THC. THC that gives you the high attaches to certain protein receptors in specific nerve cells in the brain, which ignite a series of cellular reactions. THC levels in marijuana have really increased since the 70s. I have read that they're creating stuff now that is just so much more potent than what was there in the, in the beginning of the drug culture and the hippie movement and all that. Now, what do these cellular re reactions do? Here's what they create. The following short-term short -term effects. One, memory loss, learning prevention, diminished problem-solving skills, motor coordination loss, increased heart rate, weakened decision-making ability, and an overall distorted perception of reality. Now hold that thought. 
The Bible says, be sober and be alert. Now, just think with me for a minute, because I'm not here to attack anybody. I, I, I wish I hadn't, but when I was a teenager, before I knew Jesus, I smoked pot. And I'm going to tell you, that's exactly what it did to me. That's why pot smokers are always, whoa, man. Because it's taken forever for one thought to make it from one ear to the other. Whoa, man. Two pot smokers were driving into a small town. <laughs> Hang on. They saw a sign. And one of them said, well, we're heading into Mexia. And the other one said, no, it's Mahia. He said, I'm telling you, it's, it, it's Mexia, man. The other one said, it's Mahia. And they got into a big fight. Pulled into a fast food restaurant. The girl comes to the window and says, what can I do for you? Can you please tell us where we are? She looked at them and said, Dairy Queen. <laughs> well, man, Dairy Queen. All right. Now, since the Bible says, watch carefully now. Be sober, be alert. Why? Your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. So what does the Bible ask of you and I? That we have alert brains. Now, is this alert <laughs> memory loss, learning prevention, diminished problem-solving skills, motor coordination loss, increased heart rate, weakened decision-making ability, and an overall distorted perception of reality, really ready to meet the devil? Now, Science now knows, as far as long-term use of marijuana, results in a weakened immune system, higher risk of respiratory cancers, possible mental as opposed to physical addiction, as in the belief, I can't function without a joint, and significant neuro neurological issues. If you think that's not true, they've had, they've had decades and decades now to study the effects and this is what science is telling us. There's no question that marijuana use is similar in effect to alcohol abuse in that there is a loss of self-control. The Bible is replete with commands for the Christian to be self-controlled. But unlike alcohol, you cannot smoke pot and not get high. Unless you do it so much, you're always high. And if that's you, we're having an invitation at the end. The chemical effects on the body are different. Proverbs 25, 28, a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. Now let me deal with the spiritual aspect. The Bible says all things are lawful for me. So if it's, if it's legalized, the Bible says all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. Now, Paul here says that while something may be legal, it may not contribute to your spiritual growth and well-being. And that's all that really ought to matter to a believer. I want to grow in Christ. I want to grow in Christ. Uh, as Christians, we're to practice only what edifies. 1 Corinthians 14, 26, let all things be done to edification. Well, what's edification? Edify means that which adds to our spiritual advancement and growth that which builds our spiritual house. So we have to ask ourselves here, even though it might be legal, that doesn't mean it's legal. Listen, our country is declaring all kinds of things to be legal that the Bible condemns. So just because it's legal based on the judgment of a depraved culture doesn't mean we should do it. And the argument, well, if God created it, why can't I smoke it? Well, let me use some poison ivy first, because he made that too. And that's some poison oak. And you can smoke that too. And as your lungs are breaking out in hives and you're about to croak to death, I'll give you some pot too, because he made it. Just because he made it, 
a lot of things he made ain't going into this mouth. Okay? So I'll answer the question with a question. Does marijuana build your faith? Does it help you defeat the devil? Do you grow spiritually? Does it help you produce love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, meekness, kindness, faith? Does it bring spiritual advancement? Does it enhance your relationship with Christ? No way. Does it make your spiritual house stronger? No way. So if they legalize it, so what? Like I said, my truth comes from Scripture, not from the judgments of a depraved culture. Okay? I don't think you ought to drink anything. I mean, you can, but I think with every sip you take, you increase your chances of making a bad decision. So you can take that or leave it. That's just me. What does the Bible say about the practice of cremation? A lot of people have wondered about this. I can't tell you how many funerals I've conducted where I've been asked this question. And both of my parents have told me they want to be cremated. My dad is already gone. My mother, my sweet little mother, told me she wants to be cremated. She says, is there anything in the Bible about this? Again, you might disagree with me on, on this one, but let me tell you what I, I have come to. The Bible teaches that we are comprised of both body and soul. The soul is eternal, but the body is temporary. hate to break it to you, but it's going to get old, it's going to get wrinkled, and then it's going to die. Or you're going to get raptured. Peter wrote, all flesh is like grass, and all of its glory like the flower of grass. And what happens to grass? It withers. Have you noticed that the older you get, you shrink? Come on, everybody. Hello. I, I know people used to be six foot two. Now they're five foot 11. I say, what happened? Did I get taller or did you? Well, no, the grass withers and the flower of your beauty or handsomeness falls. But the word of the Lord is what remains forever. Now, here's Peter's point. It's that the body is going to fade away. It's going to return to the dust from which it came. It is the soul that enters eternity immediately. If you're a believer, no Hades for you, straight in the presence of the Lord. And when he returns, he is going to raise from the grave, whether it's all ashes, partly ashes, just been put in there, it's coming out a glorified body, it's reunited with your soul, and so are you ever with the Lord. But your soul goes into the presence of the Lord immediately. So while we're on earth, our bodies serve this ultimate purpose. They are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. It is not for you to, you know, do whatever you want with it. it your body is God's temple of the Holy Spirit. But once our bodies have died, our souls immediately go in the presence of the Lord, absent from the body, present with the Lord. So what happens to the body after that, whether buried or cremated, is the same. It's eventually going to return to dust. You know what cremation does? It accelerates the process. That's what it does. I mean, hey, if you got, you know, if somebody were cremated tonight, their body is in the same condition as Paul's when his gets resurrected because both are all ashes by now. But God doesn't have a problem with ashes. He made you out of the dust of the earth. So to my mind, all cremation does is accelerate the process. The end result is no different. Either way, God's promise is the same. Here it is. The Lord himself will come down from heaven. With a loud command. Can you imagine that? And with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God. And what's going to happen? The dead in Christ will rise first. Who are just ashes. Paul's coming out. Peter's coming out. John's coming out. Tertullian, the early church father, is coming out. Spurgeon is coming out. Billy Sunday is coming out. Luther is coming out. They're all coming out. And all the millions who have died through the centuries in Christ, they're all coming out. 
and God's going to give them a glorified body that curves cannot give you. And you know what? There's going to be no dieting in heaven. Glory to God. Isn't that good news? So what's a glorified body going to look like? What Jesus did? He ate fish and then walked right through a door. Isn't that cool? So that means you can eat your fish and walk right through the wall and not pay for your meal. Just, just kidding. Now, here's the last one I'm going to deal with tonight. Do you believe in ghosts? Does the Bible mention ghosts? How many of you ever think you saw a ghost? Tell the truth. Come on. Don't be embarrassed. Okay. See, a lot of people. What does the Bible say about it? Here's the answer. The disciples wondered if such a thing existed. Their culture clearly believed that there were such a thing as ghosts. Because one time when Jesus sent them on a boat trip across the sea, the Bible says the wind was blowing and the waves were contrary. They were really struggling. And then over there, just a ways beyond, they saw something coming towards them on the water. Now in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them walking on the sea, the Bible says. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, terrified, saying, what they say? It is a ghost. And they cried out for fear. They thought a real ghost was walking. Can you imagine if you're, I have done all night fishing many times. I can only imagine fishing about two in the morning, three in the morning, and seeing something walking towards me on the water. Right then, you change coffee. You figure out. I mean, you, you do some quick, because that would be one scary sight. Hey, John, look, but don't look, but look. And there is a human-looking thing walking towards you. Moon. Clouds drifting across the moon. And you start thinking, Lady of the Lake. All these other things we've always, all right. But what did Jesus do? Jesus immediately spoke to them and said, be of good cheer. <laughs> Don't worry about it, it's just me walking on the water. Don't be afraid. Now, the word for ghost is phantasma. And it means apparition, spirit, phantom. Interestingly, the, the disciples really said the word ghost. They believed in them. A ghost is supposedly the spirit of a dead person that for whatever reason has unfinished business that prevents him or her from resting. So they come to haunt the parties responsible. You hear things go bump in the night. The Bible supports no such thing. Now, again, my truth comes from Scripture, not the show, which I saw 30 seconds of today, ghost stories. And these, these guys and this woman were in a house, and they were going to something invisible. Why do you want us to leave? And they had these machines, you know, Geiger counter-looking things. I said, oh, please. Okay. I was wishing I could be in the attic. I don't like you. <laughs> now, as we stated earlier, there's only one or two places, or one of two places, one of two places the departed soul of a deceased person goes to. Either Hades, if they're lost, or the presence of the Lord. So it's not possible the spirit of a dead person would be allowed to roam earth with unfinished business or for any other reason. It's not in the Bible. Scripture would suggest that what some consider a ghost is actually a demon spirit disguising himself as a human soul. It happens all the time. This phenomenon is particularly prevalent in the practice of divination and other witchcraft activities where a medium, and there's a show called Medium in our wonderful TV, 
where a medium claims to be in contact with the soul of a departed loved one. Do you know the Washington Post weekly article stated that 40% of Americans say they have made contact with the dead? 40% say, I've made contact with the dead. Many people have said that they have felt the presence of someone who has crossed over. They have heard a voice, felt a light touch, and have seen visual images of their lost loved one. Remember that Bruce Willis movie where that little boy goes, I see dead people. If you didn't see it, don't go see it. Some say, but the things that the voice said through the medium could only have been known by my wife or child or husband. How could they have known? Remember, everybody, the devil knows certain things about others and is fully capable of revealing it to a medium that is under the control of that demon. Scripture sternly warns against this practice as it is the gateway of demon possession. That's why I tell people, now, if you've got occult stuff in your house, you ought to get it out. Ouija board, horoscope books, get them out. The Bible says, when you enter the land, the Lord your God is giving you, we'll close with this. Let's stand together. When you, the Bible says concerning these things, when you enter the land, the Lord your God is giving you, do not learn to imitate the detestable ways of the nations there. Let no one be found among you who sacrifices their son or daughter in the fire who practices divination or sorcery, interprets omens, engages in witchcraft or casts spells, or who is a medium or spiritist, or who consults the dead. Anyone who does these things is detestable to the Lord. Because of these practices, the Lord your God will drive you out from, uh, or drive out those nations before you. You must be blameless before the Lord your, your God. Next time, more answers to hot button questions asked by you. And again, some of them are going to be of a sexual nature. It'll be totally clean, totally pure, but we're going to see what the Bible says about it. How many of you needed this tonight? Wasn't this good? I really enjoyed it.